the Therapy in Action podcast with your hosts, Andrew Bort and Nick Jaworski. Research evidence-based practice and the tools and techniques to use that deliver the best outcomes for every patient, every time. All right. Well, I suppose we should maybe introduce ourselves in the podcast, huh? Absolutely. So obviously, we're both here from the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. Uh, myself and Andrew are the co-founders, and we run a lot of the trainings and provide support to a lot of providers, both large and small across the country, for the work that we do here at the Institute. If you are unfamiliar with the Institute, you know, I encourage you to visit the website, check out grouptherapycertification.com. But we provide a very experiential, hands-on training to help particularly group therapists, clinicians, counselors deliver therapy in a way that is maximizing patient engagement as well as recovery capital building. Both myself and Andrew have extensive experience in behavioral health, in corporate training. We're both Disney certified trainers as well as the world of education. And so we bring a lot of that into the therapeutic process and not, we're not looking just to disseminate information, right? Which is often what happens within that process. We're looking to actually make sure that the patients understand it, they retain it and they are able to use it, which is the most important thing. Me and Andrew wanted to start this podcast and really help therapists in one of the more challenging areas of their jobs, which is often running group therapy. And so we're going to be looking at evidence-based practice and evidence-based therapeutic approaches. And rather than just talking about the theory though, which is what happens in a lot of academic settings, we want to give concrete, actionable strategies that you can take after listening to this podcast and being able to implement them, you know, today or tomorrow in your session. So that's really the goal of what we're looking for. We're excited to have you joining us and we're excited for you to join us on this journey as we share this information and say, okay, well, we're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy today. Well, what can we actually do in session that makes that effective? Because um, there's often a gap between theory and practice, and we want to try and bridge that gap. And so for myself, Nick Jaworski, so again, I'm a co-founder here for the Institute. I've been in behavioral health for almost a decade now. I do a lot of work with providers across the country, some of the largest providers in the country, as well as people just starting off in small startups, telehealth and in-person. So it's been an interesting journey for me. And then way back when, you know, 20 plus years ago, I went through addiction treatment myself, so I have some personal experience going through treatment, which is part of what prompted me to be involved in the behavioral health space and, and build the institute and see if we can improve patient outcomes through highly group therapy. And just very excited to be here and excited for you guys to join us. So I'll let Andrew introduce himself. Yeah, thank you, Nick. So uh, my name's Andrew. I have my master's in education and I have certifications through Columbia and Cambridge. I'm a licensed educator and like Nick, I uh, was a former corporate trainer. Uh, I've also been through treatment myself, um, which was a mixed bag. I do tell this story often, but uh, I do have ADHD. And so for me, sitting in groups where the clinician was going round robin made me feel very anxious. Uh, it wasn't an environment conducive for growth and learning for me. But I do know that there are people like me that have high processing speeds that are spontaneous, easily forgetful in groups all over the country. And they're often sitting next to people who maybe didn't graduate from middle school or even elementary school, um, people with different cultural backgrounds, different schema or background knowledge. And so really, we founded the Institute to help improve 
patient outcomes. And one way to do that is with more inclusive delivery, meeting the needs of everyone in that room. And another way is through employing evidence-based practices more effectively. So let's face it, the term evidence-based is a buzzword in behavioral health, but few people have read the research and are simply not trained in delivering evidence-based practices properly. So we're going to help. And in each episode, you know, we'll explore a new topic and discuss the practical application. Want to get started? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I think the bottom line here is how do we help patients and, and how do we help them in their lives better, right? And so how are they able to achieve recovery out, outside the therapy session, which is something that we all talk about. So today we're, we're taking a look at an article by Dr. Kathleen Carroll. Dr. Kathleen Carroll was heavily involved in the world of SUD and behavioral health. She is an expert on cognitive behavioral therapy. I had the good fortune of meeting with her before she passed away. She unfortunately passed away. Um, not too long ago during COVID, not from COVID, it was actually a rare onset of, of a, a different disease, but she is phenomenal in the work that she does. So we kind of want to start with this. So Andrew, if you want to kind of bring up the, the article and, and walk us through the beginning, why, why don't we jump in? So this is from Dr. Kathleen Carroll. She was the Director of uh, Psychological Research in the Division of Addiction and a Professor of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. So this article is titled Dissemination of Evidence-Based Practices, How Far We've Come and How Much Further We Have to Go. So this article is not long and it is very reader friendly. So we're just actually going to read through the article, learn about it, and talk about some, some sticking points or some best practices as we go. So it begins, our first subheading is where we began. When I began my training as of the first pre-doctoral fellow in the Division of Substance Abuse at Yale Department of Psychiatry in 1982, the landscape of addiction treatment in the United States was quite meager. Available medications were limited to disulfram for alcohol, methadone for opiates with the occasional use of clonidine for detoxification. Naltrexone for opiate dependence was a novel approach used typically only in highly specialized university-affiliated programs. Non-pharmacological approaches were largely of two forms. The first was long inpatient or residential stays characterized by multiple daily groups and frequently highly confrontational. The second approach was out of a patient counseling rooted in self-help framework where former drug or alcohol dependent individuals provided group counseling organized around encouraging uh, enduring affiliation with self-help organizations. The only manual in wide circulation was the big book of AA. The supervision I received on clinical cases was firmly grounded in psychoanalytical or object relations theory. There were very few outcome studies of well-defined behavioral therapists as the landmark Woody and Rosenville studies. The first randomized trials of manual guided therapists in addictions would not appear until 1983. Thus, the black box that was addiction treatment could not have been much blacker. I love that intro and I completely agree, right? You know, being in and out of facilities all the time. So I spend a lot of my time on the road. I'm usually in a different facility every two weeks um, somewhere across the country. And this is, is actually still a challenge, right? There's a very big black box around what is effective addiction treatment. And, you know, I'm glad she brought up obviously randomized control trials or RCTs. And those are the gold standard for determining efficacy within treatment, but there wasn't many. Like you said before, there was nothing. Even now, there's not a, a wide dissemination of evidence-based practice within the field, even in graduate programs. I think I think she might mention it later, but it's only like 65% of graduates actually even get 
exposure to evidence-based practice and I run through the numbers, really, you know, addiction evolved pretty much separately from behavioral health. And we still see that within the U.S. because you have your, even from a billing standpoint, you can bill for primary mental health or primary addiction. And that is part of this process where SUD came up almost really just through AA, right? Before there was AA, there was almost no formalized treatment. And so when formalized treatment did start with programs like Hazelden, they just basically copied the AA model and then started charging people for it more or less. So now we're much more sophisticated and Hazelden also is much more sophisticated. They're a very data-oriented organization from a treatment outcome standpoint these days. But there's been so much progress in the field and not a lot of therapists have actually been exposed to it, much less told how to apply it, right? You know, if they do have that information. And then I, I love also her mention of patient outcomes, which is very new to the field. You know, patient outcomes are just starting to be tracked. There is no consistency or standard really. And so a lot of confusion, a lot of question marks around that. But without patient outcomes, we can't know if what we're doing is more effective, less effective, the same as treatment as usual. And so that's a really important starting point. I completely agree. The training in evidence-based practices, especially the delivery, is very, very inconsistent. Even the clinicians or the clinical courses that do offer it, it's it's usually offered more in theory than actual hands-on practice. And I think that's why a lot of clinicians struggle in this area. And we're gonna we're gonna see in the next section how far we've come is our next sub subheading. Okay, so addiction treatment is much changed, largely for the better. There are now a wide range of EVPs. Okay, so this is evidence-based practices. Sometimes it's the acronym is EBP. In this case, it's EVP. So EVPs available for a broad range of addictions with contingency management, cognitive behavioral, CBT, motivational interviewing, MI, and structured family therapies. The most prominently cited among the meta-analysis, systematic reviews and treatment guidelines. Manuals and training resources for most EVPs are available and easily accessible via the internet. Use of EVPs in larger practices and treatment systems is now a virtual mandate. Most clinicians profess that they routinely implement at least one EVP, so evidence-based practice. In the United States, there have been coordinated ambitious efforts to train very large numbers of clinicians in EVPs and to implement them across the nation's largest healthcare system, the Veterans Administration. Kind of picking up on what, what you were talking about, where there's now a greater focus on training, there's a greater focus on outcomes. That paragraph is very optimistic. <laughs> Don't tune out just yet, folks. <laughs> Here we go. There's also been a surge in the availability of approved medications, most notably buprenorphine, naltrexone, and acompensate. Particularly exciting are the promising new pharmacotherapeutic strategies, e.g. vaccines and cognitive enhancing agents, as well as novel mechanisms to promote adherence to medications where noncompliance has been undermined their impact and dissemination. So these efforts are significant and admirable. But multiple lines of evidence also indicate that evidence-based practices are far from universally available and completely implemented. Okay, so for example, a recent national survey in the United States indicated that most treatment programs do not offer training or supervision in evidence-based practices, nor do they require newly hired clinicians to have training in EVPs. Okay, I think that that is very interesting. So Nick, can you think of anywhere you've ever worked where a new initiative or tool was rolled out and you received no training on it? <laughs> uh, you know, back when I was doing corporate, no, right? 
you know, but you know, most of the time you definitely get a lot of training on those components, even in, in some of the organizations that we run, right? There's expectations that there is one to two weeks of training before people start. But I think what Kathleen's saying here is that that's not common practice within treatment providers. And we can both speak to that. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we've been in a single program that had clinical onboarding outside of here's EMR, here's how you do documentation, like the paperwork stuff people get training on, but they don't get training on actual therapeutic delivery. And I think that's what she's referring to here. I found it fascinating, you know, no matter where we go in the country, I mean, whether we are observing at a Medicaid clinic or one that is targeted towards the top 1%, the delivery of group therapy seems to be the same. This round robin, well, she's going to get to it in a second, chat right? So continuing with the article, in our own work, we evaluated treatment as usual as practiced in 20 sites across the United States in recent clinical trials network, a study of motivational approaches. Prior to implementation of the study, clinicians reported that they made extensive use of evidence-based practices such as CBT and uh, 12-step facilitation. However, when more than 700 audio taped treatment as usual sessions were evaluated by independent raters, interventions associated with those and other evidence-based practices were virtually undetectable. In fact, therapists initiated discussions of issues clearly unrelated to any patient problem or issue, chat was seen more frequently than any evidence-based practice. So Nick, I, I feel like there's a lot to unpack here. So clinicians reported extensively using evidence-based practices, not just a little, but a considerable amount, but the independent raters say virtually undetectable. So I think it's safe to assume that they don't know, right? The clinicians weren't in, being intentionally deceitful. I mean, every time I've been recorded at work, I do additional prep to make sure it's, it's going to be as good as possible. So I'm assuming that they were on their game. More likely is they don't know how to deliver them properly. They think they are, but they're not. Yeah. I think this paragraph is really the crux of the article and what I think we want to dig into here, right? So to your point, and based on I mean, what we see all the time is obviously therapists are very passionate about what they do. They're looking to do the best for their patients and no one's going to go in and try to do a, a bad job or even a mediocre job, right? I mean, because people really care but what's happening is there's a disconnect between the training that they get in their graduate and their licensing programs and then their ability to deliver. So the training tends to be very book heavy, very theoretical, right? It's just knowledge transfer. And what we are always driving home, right, is the fact that there is a massive difference between knowledge and skill, the ability to do something. And one of the examples we always give is riding a bike or learning to swim, right? You can't do these things from a book and a chalkboard. You, you can maybe get some information starting off, like, hey, put your foot on the pedals, right? But to really learn to ride a bike, I got to get on that bike and practice and practice and practice. To really learn to swim, I got to get in the water and practice and practice and practice. And so what's not being afforded for clinical training opportunities is the ability to practice with someone else that is a higher skill level that really knows what to do. They're not given these opportunities. And so there's a gap in the training processes, you know, which is obviously something that we've been working on filling. Absolutely. And there's no better place to initiate that practice than in group therapy. And the reason that is, is 
you have, you know, a room of diverse people, just like you have outside of the treatment space. So when you set up uh, deliberate practice opportunities, whether it is exchanging dialogues, uh, form I statements, or, you know, practicing assertive communication or building recovery plans, we want to encourage the patients to help each other, right? If a task is, is too daunting for one person to complete alone, whether it in, be in therapy or outside, we want them to ask for help, right? And then patients, regardless of their skill level, can help each other fill in those gaps. And that's one thing that we really like to promote, whatever the activity is, following the activity, it's always good to do a kind of mingle where you can go and you can give your answer to other patients and they can give positive feedback or some corrective advice. I think this idea that the clinician needs to be involved in every conversation for learning or growth or even processing to occur is incorrect. The research shows us that that people can learn from each other just as much as they can learn from the expert in the room if the opportunity is set up correctly. Well, that's such a massive misconception. I think that, you know, unfortunately, a number of therapists have, there's this belief that individual therapy is somehow better than group therapy because the therapist is there one-on-one -on -one with a patient. And that's not true. That's not supported by the research. Group therapy is as efficacious or sometimes more efficacious, depending on the study, than individual therapy. And also what we constantly talk about is you're not going to be there, right? Treatment is usually a, a short duration, especially if you're in high levels of care, like residential or IOP or PHP. And so what's a patient doing after you're no longer there? They have to be able to get that skill set. And so that requires them to know what to do on their own or somehow utilizing support systems, you know, from, from family, friends, the community. And so to give a, a really good example of the confusion here, right, is again, the, the difference between knowledge and skill or what we refer to in the adult learning world as declarative versus procedural learning. So a, a therapist might go up and talk about restructuring negative thoughts, right? So let's take CBG skill, restructuring negative thoughts. So say, here's restructuring negative thoughts. This is how it works, blah, blah, blah. And now they've told you what it is. So, you know, that's declarative, right? But just like the bike example, well, great. They told you where to put your feet, but, but can you jump on and ride a bike? Absolutely not. Can you jump in the water and just start swimming? Absolutely not. So what's being missed is that next critical step where you have to practice and practice and practice with the patient. And it doesn't matter if the patient is practicing with the therapist hearing it right? Because we can go back to William Miller's research on change talk, right? And so the more change talk that a patient has, the more likely they are to be successful in their recovery. And none of that research says change talk in front of a therapist. That research says change talk. So that change talk can be with your mother. It can be with the wall. It can be with anyone, right? It can be with yourself. Change talk is change talk. So I think it's really important to realize that the therapist is not, doesn't need to be the center of the process. Obviously they're incredibly valuable, uh, to that process and they facilitate and, and coach it just like any, any other kind of learning situation. But it's also important to realize that we, we can step back um, as facilitators and, and let patients, and we want patients to develop the skills and the ability to do this on their own as much as they can and, and maximize that practice. Even to add to that, when we're talking about Miller, if we're going around and one person's talking at a time, right, in 60 minutes, everybody gets five minutes to talk and 55 minutes to listen. But we know that adults don't learn that way. Most of the patients will be zoning out. I'm sure the listeners have, have seen this in their own groups or groups that they've observed. And most of the patients are staying silent, right? 55 minutes of silence per person. So many missed opportunities there to find out what patients are actually thinking, where it rather than asking people 
people one at a time. If you just simply pair them up, talk to the person next to you, it does a number of things. One, it gets everybody talking. So you know that they're consciously thinking about the task at hand that you want them to, right? They're focusing on, on what they need to focus on. Even the introverts are more likely to share, you know, the people who, you know, they don't might not want to speak out loud. Maybe they think that their answers will be judged as wrong, or they don't like the attention on them. Much more likely to share with a partner one-on-one -on -one when they know everyone else in the room is preoccupied. And the clinician gets to hear all these conversations, right? They get to walk around the room. They get to hear what patients are, are thinking about so they can address misconceptions early. You don't want to find out when the session's over that, that a patient has a completely different idea of the topic than you thought they did. And the reality is, is that a lot of times what a clinician thinks a patient understands versus what they actually understand can look very different. Why do we give like a concrete example for listeners so they can really get a feel for what we're talking about here? So let's take uh, restructuring negative thoughts, right? So as a therapist, I could come to the center of the room or go up on the board or whatever um, and say, okay, well, hey, everyone, you know, today we want to really work a little bit on self-compassion, loving ourselves and learning how to think positively about ourselves and, and our place in the world. And so one way to do this is to restructure negative thoughts. And so if you have a negative thought, you can turn that around and make it positive, right? And so again, this is just declarative information. Is, is this helping the patients actually do it? And, and is that enough information, right? You really have to think through what is an effective way to restructure negative thought. Yeah, so I say, okay, someone, Johnny, give me an example, right? And Johnny says, well, you know, I'm, I'm a liar, I'm a manipulator, I'm an addict. You know, he's like, this is what I think about myself all the time. Um, that's a negative thought. So I could say that I'm not a liar, manipulator, and an addict. And is that what we want with cognitive restructuring? No, right? That's that's not a good example. Well, we say, okay, well, Johnny, actually, let me backtrack. I apologize. We don't want to use those negative terms, but why don't we use something positive in there? So Johnny comes back and Johnny says, oh, well, you know, I, uh, I, I'm an honest person, right? So great. That's a positive statement. But, but we don't believe that Johnny actually thinks that. He's just trying to get through the session. That's exactly right, right? And is that actually being effective for Johnny? No. So there are criteria and there's a framework and a structure to effectively restructuring negative thoughts that clearly wasn't mm -hmm. communicated here. So you, you have to think through those components and say, what does restructuring a negative thought actually look like? So yes, it's, it's taking a negative statement and making it positive, right? But more than that, it's being specific with that information and pulling examples from your life is critical. So what Johnny really needs to say is, all right, well, you know, I, I can be an honest person, right? We're not going to say honest. Maybe he doesn't feel that right now. We want him to, to really say things in a way that's believable to him, because if he doesn't believe in himself, then he's not going to make progress on this. Mm -hmm. So I can be an honest person. And, and as an example, you know, last time I got out of treatment, you know, I came home and and my mother asked me if I had been drinking. Unfortunately, I had. I told her that I had. I mean, that's why I'm here today. That's why I'm back in rehab, right? But that was an example where I wasn't, I, I could have lied. You know, I could have made something up. And she probably would have believed me because quite frankly, she wanted to believe me, right? She didn't want to believe I was using. I, she, I could have gotten away with it. But I chose to be an honest person. That's a great example of actually restructuring a negative thought and thinking back to real life examples. And I'm sure we'll get this into another podcast, but you know, neurobiologically, what you're doing is you are opening up consolidated memory, right? And so once you open that up, then you have access to kind of edit your unconscious templates 
and then reconsolidate them later, which ultimately changes thought patterns, changes behavior. And that's a big part of what you're trying to do with cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's how active restructuring works on a neurobiological level. So that, that's a great example of what we actually want to see happening in the therapeutic setting versus just you know sharing some information and, and hoping people remember it, which is not overly effective. Yeah, completely agree. So there is growing consensus that monitoring, supervision, and feedback are needed until the clinician can demonstrate adequate fidelity and skill. There's that word again, skill. Fidelity and skill as randomized training studies of clinicians have highlighted that workshops are necessary, but clearly insufficient in teaching clinicians to implement evidence-based treatment effectively. I wanted to jump into this a bit more. So I, I, I kind of followed the, the hyperlink there that she's quoting about the training just to provide a little bit more feedback. Okay. So this is from training therapists in evidence-based practice, a, a critical review of studies from system contextual perspective. Uh, by Renad Bedis and Philip Kendall. Essentially, what they say is there are obstacles in dissemination and implementation of evidence-based practice into clinical practice. So these are criticism of a treatment manuals, um, inadequate training, and unsupportive organizational climates. Okay, so just to touch on these just for a minute. Okay, I've said this before, but treatment manuals, a curriculum. Okay, so a curriculum is a framework. It's what you do with it that matters and who's wielding it can produce very, very different results. So for example, uh, take this open-ended question, okay? Is it reasonable for an individual in recovery's significant other to keep alcohol in the house for a party that they're throwing? This is a great open-ended question, you know? That, and the reason it's good is because it, it everyone might have a little bit of a different opinion on this, right? There's no, there's no really solid set answer here. If it was posed in a curriculum, look, there's a number of ways that we could address it. So one, the clinician can ask group members one at a time what their answer is. We've, we've talked about that before. Uh, the clinician can pose it to the room and lead a discussion. The clinician can have everybody write down the response. The clinician can have members discuss the question in pairs, or the clinician can arrange a statement walk where uh, group members pick a side of the room. So if you agree it's okay for the significant other to have alcohol in the house for a party that they're throwing, go to the right side of the room. If you think it's not okay, go to the left side of the room. And then if there is that you know, therapeutic alliance within the group, patients on opposing sides can then try to persuade each other to join their side. So a number of different ways we can approach this open-ended question. So I, I listed them in an order of increasing group engagement and patient talk time. So while all five approaches do discuss a relevant topic for relapse prevention, the final activity produces the best opportunity for everyone in the room to sharpen their assertive communication skills and to build empathy with other people's point of view while they're still engaging with the topic. Uh, sorry to go off on a tangent there, but I, when they say things like criticism of manuals, I personally feel that that's a, really a criticism of training because there needs to be more training. A manual is, is an inanimate object. You can't blame the manual. So uh, getting back, so we have manuals, training, and a supportive environment getting in the way of more effective delivery. Uh, again, the manual issue could be solved with the combination of the other two. The administration piece, the organizational buy-in is key. The organization as a whole has to believe in evidence-based practice if they really expect all their clinicians to buy in. Oh yeah, 100%. And I, I love what you hit on there with it's about the delivery of the curriculum, right? 
I mean, it doesn't matter if you're going through the motions. It matter. It matters how you do it and how effectively you do it. And maybe a, a really good example with that is, is just this tendency to cover material. And sometimes you see people doing that, right? But if all we had to do was cover the material, I mean, we could literally give the curriculum to the patients and say, hey, patient, you know, go through this material. That's not effective. Well, what I love though also is it shows you how important the therapist is, right, in this process to the counselor. I mean, they are they are critical to the success that patients are going to have. And it all and it comes down to delivery, right? It doesn't come down to how much they know and if they can repeat that knowledge to the patient. It comes down to how they effectively deliver the curriculum. And then coming back, again, not, not just giving the information, but making sure that the patients understand it, retain it, and can use it right effectively in their lives creating that buy-in from the very beginning, right? It's about explaining why are we here? What is the purpose of what we're doing today? If you can get the patients to buy in, it's, the, the session is going to go much, much better. Everyone will be more engaged, more involved, and it's better for the clinician too. 100%. I want to I want to comment on that. I think it's, it's really important. So the buy-in is, is often something that we see missing, right, from patients. I mean, do a lot of patients want to be in treatment? No, right? They, they're, they're there because... Family's pushing them in, the job's pushing them in, court's pushing them in, right? Um, they're not super excited about being there in the first place. And so you need to get buy-in. I mean, that's that's what motivational interviewing is, right? That's the core of it, is what are the patient's goals? How are you getting them bought into the therapeutic process so you can start to build that alliance, which we all know leads to effective treatment, right? Or effective outcomes, I should say. Um, and it's a very important part. So let me give you an example. I was running a group probably, probably two months ago um, and I was doing it on, on I statements, right? I feel blah, blah, blah. Um, bunch of guys, right? Some of these guys, a lot of ego, uh, and a lot of guys, I mean, they don't care about I statements. They, they, to them, it sounds really namby-pamby. Why am I talking about my feelings? I don't want to talk about my feelings, right? This isn't effective for me. And so if as a therapist, you go in there and you just say, hey, today we're doing I statements and this is how you do one. And okay, you guys, you know, give me a couple examples. Okay, great, Right half the guys in that room are are checked out. They're not paying attention. Doesn't matter if they can repeat it back to you. They're going to forget it the next day because they don't really care. And so the way that I went into that session is I said, okay, guys, today we're going to use something called I statements. And so I have a question for you guys. Do you guys have relationships for you that are important in your life? Yes. Almost every single person, right? Raises their hand or, or says, yes. I said, well, would you like a way to strengthen those relationships or, or rebuild maybe damaged relationships that you have. Every single person in the room, yes, that would be great. I said, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you a tool today. And I want to emphasize that fact. This is a tool. I'm not telling you that you have to use this. I'm not telling you that this is going to change your life tomorrow. Well, I'm giving you a tool that will help you with this goal that you just stated that you have. Does that sound like something that would be valuable to you? Again, everyone said yes. And now we're off to the race. That's right. That's right. We had the buy-in and uh, probably a good component of that story is I had two guys that were completely out of it. And one guy was actively resistant, right? He was, was uh, aggressive and, you know, made it very clear within the first five minutes of the session that he wanted nothing to do with me or that session. <laughs> uh, you know, he kind of stood up, he was aggressive. He, he swatted this, um, this little ball that I use sometimes in groups like back at me. Uh, and at the end of the session, what, what I always do is I recap and I said, okay, well, 
did you guys get a tool today that was useful to you? And everyone was like, yes, we did. And did you, do you feel confident in using that tool? Now we've gone through tons of practice and repetition. Are you able to use it? Do you think, right? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I, I get it now. And so I ended that session and actually had both gentlemen come up to me and say that was one of the best sessions they'd ever been a part of because I was taking over for, for someone else. It wasn't my uh, usual group or anything that I ran. Um, and they, you know, they just came up and they said, Hey, apologize for how it was in the beginning. You know, I'm under a lot of stress, things are going on. This was one of the best sessions I've ever had really appreciate it. And so that buy-in is, is super effective. After the sessions are over, I always follow everyone out into the communal area, you know, the smoking area and just chat or listen to chat or, or what have you. And normally they, they're, they're not talking about what happened in group, but if it's a, if it is an effective session and they were engaged. That's what they're talking about when they get outside. And that's fantastic. To me, that shows that shows engagement, but that also shows excitement for the skills that they're learning, right? If 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 they're going to continue the discussion when they're not forced to anymore, I think that that shows a successful session. Well, and Andrew, as we know, what's the first step in learning? Conscious attention. Conscious attention, right? And you, you're not going to have that unless you have engagement and motivation. And so by getting buy-in, by actually being very engaging in your delivery, that that creates the foundation for learning that you need to move forward. Because without attention, without motivation, you, you might as well just be talking to the wall. I'm going to start this paragraph over. So there is growing consensus that monitoring, supervision, and feedback are needed until the clinician can demonstrate adequate fidelity and skill. As randomized training studies of clinicians have highlighted that workshops are necessary, but clearly insufficient in teaching clinicians to implement evidence-based treatments effectively. Regarding utilization of new medications for addiction, utilization of approved medication is growing in most countries, but remains several fold smaller than the number of individuals who might benefit from them. Insurance and third-party support are uneven for new proven treatments, but remains consistent and plentiful for some therapists that have been demonstrated many times to be both expensive and ineffective. Upon reflection, my own recommendations regarding strategies for dissemination have not changed greatly since uh, Bruce Ronsvale and I wrote our piece, A Vision of the Next Generation of Behavioral Therapist Research in the Addictions in addition five years ago. So here is uh, the provided expert that she gives. First and most fundamentally, more research is needed that verifies the superior efficacy and cost effectiveness of evidence-based treatment over standard practice. Second, when multiple uh, evidence-based practices are available, studies with adaptive designs are needed to guide the choice of frontline treatments and to identify optimal sequences of treatments to deliver when initial results are poor. ESTs are empirically supported uh, treatments. Third, a new subfield of training effectiveness research is needed to address a series of questions about treatment dissemination that parallel those articulated by Paul. Okay, so which training is needed, which therapy for which trainee for which type of patient, right? And so they're, they're saying the training really needs to be tailored to the specific type of patient that they're working with. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we've known that for a long time, right? That tailoring the treatment to the individual is, is highly beneficial for for. I think obvious reasons I hold. That's also why the Institute training is so beneficial because we're focusing on those engagement strategies for groups, right? So we're not teaching therapeutic interventions. We're, we're, we're talking more about facilitation skill and getting everybody involved and motivated and engaged. Okay. Uh, fourth, 
While behavioral treatments uh, resist formulation and delivery with the precision of FDA-approved medications, computer-assisted therapist training and computer-delivered uh, treatment hold considerable promise for bringing the efficacy and precision of EST dissemination to new levels. Okay, so she's saying technology holds a lot of promise, just as it does for outcomes tracking. I know that you have some thoughts on that, correct? Obviously, there's a lot of patient outcomes tracking software that's recently come out of the market. So I highly recommend using that if you are a provider or working at a provider asking, you know, asking your owner or executive director or the clinical director about that kind of stuff. Um, or just tracking outcomes on your own as much as possible. I mean, what I always say is that bottom line is you got to start somewhere. And so if that means just polling your patients and getting some baseline data that allows you to know how they generally do, right? Am I generally seeing improvement over the course of my, my sessions or am I seeing regression, right? And what's happening over time. So that allows you to test things and say, okay, I tried it this way last time I ran this group. Let's try it this way this time and see if it changes how patients are responding. So I think that stuff is, is really, um, really critical and really important wherever possible. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we're going to get into that more in a second. Okay, so this is the last uh, last section and miles to go before we sleep. Okay, so more of the type of research suggested above is beginning to appear. And there are many studies of training and implementation ongoing worldwide. At the same time, what may be getting lost in these efforts is attention to the original aim of dissemination of EVPs to improve patient outcomes. In my view, the point of training providers in EVP is not to have them simply go through the motions of using motivational language or teaching coping skills, but to use these techniques and others to produce the most successful outcomes in the largest number of cases possible. What may be needed both in clinical practice and research is a radical shift to focus on reliable, clinically significant outcomes and performance indicators. Okay, so performance indicators, KPIs, there needs to be measurement. This is kind of what you said. How else will you know if what you're doing is working? Okay, so at the Institute, we always push for measurement within the session. So the session objectives, uh, simply for the reason that they allow the clinician to check patient understanding and address misconceptions, providing more tailored support. You know, frequently when we're talking about manuals or curriculums, we, we look at the objectives from an, from an educational, from a learning standpoint, usually they're not written very well, right? There's five or six objectives for a listen, uh, for a session. A lot of times they use the word like patients will understand. Well, how do you know they'll understand? Are you just going to know? I mean, that's not that's not enough, right? Hope is not a strategy. Uh, there needs to be some sort of deliverable uh, that that the clinician can observe, right? And so, if we're using action words uh, when we're developing objectives, like the patient will demonstrate, or the the patient will identify or explain, then we can actually see what they're getting and what they still need help with, so we can tailor that the guidance, the help to the patient more effectively. Yeah, that's great. And this is something that we we get when we're working with uh, counselors and therapists a lot of the time is we ask, so, well, how do you know that the patients understood X, Y, Z, whatever you were uh, talking about or, or teaching that day? And they'll often say, well, I, I really know my patients, you know, and I, I know, I know that they know it. I can see it in their eyes. And I'll just give an example because this is really um, recent experience. But yesterday I went into my daughter's school and I observed her in her math class. So she's been having a little bit of challenge there. I just want to see what was going on. And the teacher in that class taught a part of the lesson. And then she asked everyone in the class 
She goes, do you understand? And every single person, including my daughter, said, yes, we understand. Um, and so my daughter came home that night to do the homework. And lo and behold, she couldn't do the questions related to what was taught and what she told the teacher she understood in a very confident voice. And I asked her, I said, well, you know, you told the teacher that you understood this. She said, well, I, I thought I did. Because she did. She thought she understood it. And she realized that she actually tried to do it that she did not, right? And so let, let's take that, that restructuring example that we talked about. And this is one of the maybe parts we want to emphasize in terms of practical skills. We want patients to be able to do things. It's not just hearing the words about them. So in a really good session, you can say, okay, here are the criteria to restructure negative thought, right? It needs to be positive. It needs to be specific. It needs to use real life examples from your life, right? So these are parts of the criteria of restructuring negative thoughts. And then we're going to have patients do it, right? And we're going to have them do it with each other in pairs or small groups. We'll have them give feedback in the group. You know, we can use what's called a think pair share strategy. They think about the, the formulation that they're trying to come up with. They share it with a partner and then you do it as a group. And that allows you as a therapist to understand and see where everyone's coming from. It allows it when you're in pairs, you're listening, right? You're walking around listening. When they come back to the group, you get the examples. And then as a group, you can work on the nuance. Was there correct examples? Was there incorrect examples? Why don't we work that through that together to help consolidate the understanding, and then we'll go back and practice again. So why don't we practice the right way so we could practice that way. And, and that's what's really effective is I want to see again and again that they're able to do it. And so as, as you're talking about, Andrew, right, it is demonstration. That's how I know. That's how I measure it is I can see that they did it correctly multiple times in multiple situations. And so that I know I've been successful as a therapist in getting that skill uh, across to the patients for that particular session. I've accomplished my objective. Yeah, absolutely. Just taking the example of restructuring negative thoughts. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that you can initiate practice with an activity like that. My personal favorite, you know, putting the thoughts on trial, right. Is finding, finding evidence that supports it and the evidence counter to it. Right. And so even setting up like a miniature courtroom where patients can get involved and be jurors and, and they can go through the, the process in a way that that is engaging in a way that everyone will be interested in participating in, you know, there's, it, there's just so many opportunities. Yeah. And I love that because, you know, another great activity related is, is patient engagement around it. So patients write down something that they truly believe about themselves and you tell them they can share as much as they want or as little as they want. Right. Um, but what I've seen is they'll say, okay, well, I'm a failure. Um, and then, so what happens is you, you have a mingle, like you talked about before, and people walk around and they tell them their negative thought. And then the other person counters that negative thought with a real situation about that person. They say, well, you're telling me you're a failure, but yesterday when I was having a hard day, you sat down with me and you listened to me and you allowed me to express some things I was having trouble with. And it made me feel so much better. And I, I felt better than I have in a long time. And so you're not a failure. You were very successful in helping me get through my difficult situation. And so now not only is the patient able to give a specific example and restructure their own negative thought based on that feedback, but they're getting reinforcement from the patients in the group. And it's positive. They're building that culture and building that relationship. And you know, as Yalom and others have talked about, that's critical to success within a group therapy session is the culture that's built uh, among group members. And that's one way to do it. Right. Okay, uh, we're going to finish this up here. So currently, the drug abuse field, 
lacks consensus as to what constitutes clinically meaningful outcomes, that is clear quantifiable indicators of successful treatment outcomes. This is a highly complex question and one that has thus far eluded drug addiction. It is clear that retention alone is an imperfect performance indicator, i.e. compliance with ineffective approaches tends to yield disappointing results. Lack of widely accepted benchmarks in the addictions is sharp distinction to emerging standards in most areas of medicine, where, for example, patients uh, contemplating a knee replacement or heart procedure can access aggregate information regarding success rates for various procedures and clinics prior to making a decision. We are far from a system that allows individuals to enter entering addiction treatment facilities to make informed decisions regarding probable outcomes. Nick, are we making any progress on this front? I mean, we are making a lot of progress. Um, you know, it, it's a long way to go. And so, you know, kind of going back to our, our original uh, goal, you know, with, with these podcasts is giving you guys practical practical solutions and practical advice. You know, I think this is one of the areas where it's a little bit outside of the individual clinician's control right now. Right, um, you know, uh, programs and providers in mass are moving towards outcomes and more tools available. But I think, what can you do, right? What can the individual counselor or therapist do? And it's what we talked about. It's taking any kind of measurement, but at the very least, saying, "Hey, here's my objective for the day. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Can I see that my patients are able to do this consistently by the end of my session?" And so, if you can see that progress, I think that's the baseline outcome that you want to be holding yourself accountable to. And that allows you to know that the patients are more likely to be successful once they leave the, the world of therapy. Okay, so continuing with um, Dr. Carroll's article, this endeavor will doubtlessly be extremely complex given the variability in treatment systems throughout the world and the complex multi-problem nature of the addicted population. However challenging, development of consensus performance indicators would likely to spur significant clinical research innovation and novel efforts to implement to improve treatment outcomes. For example, a recent study by McClellan and colleagues on the effects of performance-based contracting on a state drug abuse treatment system indicated that systematic incentives for performance can improve patient outcomes dramatically in a wide variety of clinics. In that study, it was notable that the most successful clinics spontaneously made a number of changes to make treatment more accessible and inviting, and all learned at least one evidence-based practice. So what I'm hearing here is that investing in uh, training to understand and to be able to deliver evidence-based practices will improve patient outcomes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense to anyone that that hears it, right? But the, the challenge is, as we talked about, it's in implementation, it's in delivery. It's very easy to, to say something or hear something, but it's much harder to do that thing well. I mean, it's the difference between going out and jogging for your health and going out and running a marathon and going out and being an Olympic runner, right? These are all very different levels of skill uh, for, for the exact same practice. And so as therapists, we want to be as close to the Olympic Olympic uh, athletes as possible, right? Within our roles, I mean, that's that's the goal. We're, we're not all going to be an Olympic athlete, but the closer we can get, the better. And we definitely want to be better than, you know, just pulling someone off the street who would read the curriculum. Um, so it's, it's improving ourselves. It's improving our abilities for our patients. And I, I think that's what we really want to focus on. And that's why we're trying to share and, and disseminate some of these ideas as well as what can you do in practice, you know, so what's important there. Right. 
for clinicians that are listening that want to try some of these things, don't give up. I mean, facilitation is a skill that it gets better with time. And if there's a, if there's a huge switch to the normal routine in a group, you know, especially if it's a, a closed group that is used to a certain way, there might be resistance at first, right? So, so don't, don't give up and, you know, you will see, you will see the results. I was teaching for many years before I became an effective teacher. I, I always thought I was, right? I was like, did my students like me? Were the results okay? Yeah. But I wasn't meeting the needs of everybody in the room. It wasn't until I, I learned some of these practical uh, facilitation skills that we're talking about that I really saw I was letting down a, a large portion of my student population, right? And so when I started implementing these practices, I could see where people were struggling, where individuals were getting stuck. So I could scaffold and I could help them, you know, overcome those hurdles. And then they, they would progress much, much further as a whole group. Yeah, so true. I've, I've been there. Same thing. You know, I um, <laughs> definitely, you know, especially being young when I first started uh, teaching and training and, and being involved with helping people learn, uh, it was like, oh, I'm good at this. I'm great at this, you know? And then I look back now, I was like, man, you know, I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning. So why don't we kind of recap uh, just some of the, the practical examples that we've talked about here kind of throughout the conversation. So obviously delivering CBT skills is one example of an evidence-based practice that, you know, Dr. Carroll referred to. But so our emphasis here is it's not just on explaining that and, and sharing that information with patients so they know what it is or what it looks like. It's not them you know, giving you one example and saying, hey, that's good. What you wanna to do to be really effective is maximize practice. And so if they're doing restructuring negative thoughts or I statements or incremental goal setting or whatever your CBT objective is for that day, you want them to maximize that skill set. So just like learn to swim, it starts to become automatic. So when they go out right. into the real world, they're not stopping and thinking about their skill sets, right? When they're in a trigger situation or when they're in a stressful situation, their body and their mind defaults to it, just like you would if you jumped in the water um, and, and had to swim. So we want to see that practice that can happen through pair work, that can happen through small group work, group discussions, mingles, but how can you get them to use it over and over again and then correctly, right? So your role as a therapist is to facilitate and make sure that you're hearing them use it correctly. So you've explained it correctly in the beginning. If not, and they're making a lot of mistakes, bring everyone back, re-explain it, then have them practice again until mm -hmm. most of the people in the room are practicing it correctly and they've done it multiple times. So I think that's one thing for people to look at. Um, the buy-in that we talked about. So that's obviously part of motivational interviewing, right? Are we bringing the clients or the patient's goals to the fore so that they are um, motivated to engage with us in the therapeutic process? And so that's how we talk to patients and ask them questions. It's like, do you see why this is important? Do you see how this could be useful to you? What do you want to be successful with on the outside? Oh, these relationships that you have? Well, let me give you a tool today that's going to help you with that. Or we talk about restructuring negative thoughts. You know, do you have thoughts about yourself that you particularly don't like? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, well, great. Today, I'm going to give you a tool to help with that. Do you think that would be useful? Well, yeah, that'd be great. Great. Now I've got buy-in, right? And it only took me five seconds to get that buy-in. Um, obviously, sometimes it takes longer, but so I think those points are, are important. We talked about the, the change talk and, you know, William Miller's research on that. 
And so what's a practical way to do that within the therapy session? Reduce your talking time, right? The less you're talking, the better in a lot of situations. And the more they're talking, that's positive change talk, right? If it's sustained change talk, which is the opposite of what we want, then you can interject and you can maybe look at that differently or encourage other examples from the group. But if you're seeing positive change talk, then you want to try and step back and let that change talk continue to happen so that it's reinforced, reinforced, and the, the neural pathways start to crystallize basically uh, along a more positive path. So I think those are all just really concrete examples that we, we kind of went through and maybe didn't exactly draw attention to. So those are takeaways that you should be able to use, you know, today or tomorrow after you listen to this podcast. And then I think one last thing that I would add, we didn't really touch on, but, you know, we talked about the value of training. So go to trainings, right? Trainings are highly valuable. You can learn a lot from them, but then how do you really make it effective? And as, as Kathleen talked about, uh, you have to be have reinforcement and feedback and support. And so some programs provide a lot of that and some don't. So what do you do if you have a program that's not necessarily providing it? Well, I would frankly say, go and ask and say, hey, you know, talk to your clinical director, your clinical supervisor, say, will you come in and watch me today and observe my session and give me any feedback on it? That's one way to get it. If you're not comfortable bringing in the boss, you know, go and ask one of your, your co-therapists and say, hey, would you be willing to watch me today? And, and the same way you can actually watch them, right? Go in if you got some free time. I used to do that all the time. I used to go into other people's sessions and check them out and, and see what I could learn. I'm like, oh, I always learned something. And sometimes it was what not to do. <laughs> But I always learned something and I was able to take that away and use it in my own sessions. And finally, you can always ask the patients, right? You know, if you, no one has time to come in or you don't have time to go there, ask the patients, what worked for you today? What didn't work for you today? That questioning is going to allow you to, to really make effective decisions about your own um, delivery and facilitation. Absolutely. And, you know, just remember, you know, adaptability and flexibility are key. What works for one group will not necessarily work for another. And so I think, uh, you know, getting feedback, I think that can be very, very powerful. 100%. Well, we covered a lot today. I mean, that was a, that's a great article. But I think it's important. It's a great kind of first topic for our first episode and say, hey, there is this gap between what we think we know and what we're actually delivering out there. And so hopefully today we provided not just a, a framework of why this is important, but some concrete examples of ways to be more effective. And that's what we're going to do every episode is we'll take one probably more narrow topic than this, quite frankly, and maybe we'll take something like a single CBT skill and we'll talk through the research on it. And then we'll do a lot of practical examples about how you can take that particular research and that particular skill and implement it in a way that's highly effective for your patients. Uh, so I hope you will all join us for future episodes. Thank you very much. Let's also, uh, if you want more information, right? You can always go to the grouptherapycertification.com website or you can reach out and engage with us. I mean, we're, we're more than happy to connect with people. We'd love to hear from you. Did you get value out of this particular episode? Did you have questions on it? you're welcome to put them in the comments. Um, so you can put them in the comments on the YouTube video or the podcast. You could also email us, you know, if you want to email us at certification at grouptherapycertification.com. That's a great way to get in touch with us. And both Andrew and myself are on LinkedIn and we're very, very active on LinkedIn. We're always happy to connect with people there as well. All right. Well, thanks everyone. I guess we'll see you guys next time.